The 13th chapter of the book of Mark begins with verse 1 like this. And as he, Jesus, was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, to them, to him Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And he will mislead many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that's not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts and you'll be flogged in the synagogues, and you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not be anxious beforehand about what you're to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother to death. And a father, his child. And children will rise up against parents, having them put to death. And you'll be hated by all on account of my name. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. Yogi Berra, famous baseball player and manager was watching a young rookie phenom going through batting practice at, in spring training. He was impressed. And he turned to one of the guys standing by him and made one of those statements that, uh, that Yogi is famous for making. He said, that young man's future is ahead of him. It's pretty profound. I thought everybody's future was ahead of them. The question is not where is your future. The question is what is it like? There are a lot of people who have tried to predict the future. Most of the time they are wrong. For example, years ago a Boston newspaper carried this item. Joshua Coppersmith has been arrested for trying to extract funds from ignorant and superstitious people by a device which he says will convey the human voice over wires. He calls this instrument a telephone, and everybody knows that a telephone won't work. Ask my daughter, you know, if it'll, if it'll work. Les DeForest, a, um, one of the great pioneers of, of radio, made a a prediction that was, permitted, that was printed in the New York Times in 1926. Quote, 
While theoretically and technically television may be feasible commercially and financially, I consider it an impossibility, a development of which we need waste little time daydreaming. Most of the time, people's predictions of the future are wrong. Seventy-five years ago, we like to say that modern man had discovered everything that can be discovered. We all know that that's not true. And sometimes our predictions of the future are too pessimistic. You want to become a fatalist. You try to predict tomorrow. For example, a newspaper recently ran this article. As if we didn't have enough to worry about. The youngsters, the markets, the Russians, the Middle East, pollution, inflation, and all the rest. We learned that the planet Earth's corner of the galaxy is overdue for a supernova. I bet you didn't know that. This part of the galaxy is overdue for a supernova. A supernova is the explosion of a giant star. And a government scientist says that there should be one of the big blow-ups somewhere in this region every hundred million years or so. But there apparently hasn't been one for the past 500 million or 600 million years, so we're due. A supernova as close as 30 to 60 million light years away would kill everyone on planet Earth in a few minutes. One closer than that would vaporize the planet. Can you imagine two Aggies sitting around talking one day and one says to the other, you look a little depressed, what's the problem? Well, this planet's due for a supernova. You know, can, you, can you hear that? You may not relate to that, but you may relate to this. If you like to read Mike Royka's column, he's a syndicated columnist out of Chicago. He writes for the Dallas Morning News. Yesterday, he had an interesting editorial. He, he said that we have had this, you know, this outpouring of sympathy for Kuwait, and well, we should. But he noted that because of the wealth of that country, it'll probably re, be rebuilt in about two years' time with all the wealth they have. And he said, while that country is rebuilt to probably better than it was before, we still have urban blight, and we still have the drug problem, and we still have homelessness. Said Mike Royka, quote, the future for Kuwait is better than the future of America. One person said, our problem is our future isn't what it used to be. When asked what he thought was the basic difference between the world in which he grew up and the world in which we now live, C.N. Snow, famous novelist and scientist, replied without hesitation, the absence of a future. Maybe it is true. There is an absence of the future. If that is correct, then Yogi Berra was not right. Our future may not be ahead of us. I know that it is dangerous to try to predict the future, and I'm not going to do that. Most of the people who predict the future become pessimistic and fatalistic, and most of them are wrong, and yet we cannot deny the fact that most of what Jesus said toward the last days of His ministry had to do with the end time. 
And so even though I'm not going to try to talk about what the future is like, I am going to try to talk about the future. But before I talk about the future, I need to say something about the past. What I need to say about the past is this. It's out of your hands. I think it's interesting that when, that when Jesus was talking about the future, He always talked about it in the context of termination and finality. He always talked about it in the context of irreversible decisions and conclusions. And he seems to be saying to these disciples, gentlemen, you need to be very careful about how you live this day because once you live it, it's gone for good. It's out of your hands. The past is a blank, is a canceled check. It's irreversible and irrevocable. It's gone. Now some people have a hard time releasing their grip on the past. They live there. It is in the past that they live and move and have their being. For them it's only what has been and they have become slaves in bondage to the past. It's out of your hands. Linus was talking to Charlie Brown in the Peanuts cartoon and Linus says, you know, maybe it's wrong that we're always worrying about tomorrow. Maybe we should just live for today. And Charlie Brown said, no, that'd be giving up. I'm still hoping that yesterday will get better. Well, he's hoping in vain. And every attempt that you and I have and exert to try to make yesterday better is, is a futile attempt because yesterday is dead and gone. The past is irreversible. It's out of your hands. In Arnold Bennett's diary, there's, a, there's an interesting entry. He just says this, John Buchanan was invited for tea at 4.30. He arrived at 4.27. At 5.15, he got up and left. I love it. He just got up and left. He was one of those rare people, people that knew how to leave. We've all had guests that didn't know how to leave, haven't we? And we've tried our best, you know, to drop those subtle hints, maybe not so subtle, to try to get them to leave, you know, like maybe we should go to bed so you folks can go home. And one of the, one of the hardest lessons you will ever learn in life is the lesson of when to leave. Lot's wife failed the test, failed the lesson. So when God came to Lot and said, it's time for you to get up and get out of here, get your family, get out of here. I'm going to destroy this city. Lot's wife was still clinging to yesterday and she turned to, for one last glimpse at yesterday and turned into a pillow of salt. And so some of us renew our guilt by remembering the past we've done, the wrong we've done in the past. And some of us revive our anger by remembering the wrongs that have been done us. And sometimes we shame ourselves by remembering the things left undone. And we discourage ourselves by remembering past failures. And we become not pillars of salt, but pillars of sorrow and despair congealed to yesterday. It's out of your hands. Some people 
have never left their sorrows. And I tell you, you can't live today without leaving yesterday's sorrows. And some have never been able to leave their guilt, their wrongs. And David cried, blot out my transgressions. And he does when we ask him rightly. But when God forgives us, oftentimes we're not able to forgive ourselves. And some people have never been able to leave those hurts and betrayals of the past. I read about a famous artist who in every painting, on every canvas, she had one thing always there. Sometimes it was unnoticeable and imperceptible, but it was always there. On every painting, she painted this barren tree that symbolized some hurt, some betrayal of yesterday. There is a principle. I cannot change anybody by direct action but I can change myself. And they begin to change in response to me. And so the psalmist said, commit your way to the Lord, trust Him, and He will bring it to pass. What he was saying is this, you've got to release before He'll take. Yesterday, the past is out of your hands. Secondly, the future is in God's hands. Now, whatever else you want to see in this text, you need to see this, that God was wanting His disciples to understand, especially that little group of four. He wanted them to understand that He was in control of the future. And even when persecution comes, He said, and when you're flogged in the synagogues, now imagine that, going to church and getting flogged, persecuted. Even when you're flogged in the synagogues, He said, You trust me because I'm in control even to the point that I'll give you the words to say. He's so much in control of the future, He'll give us the words of the future. The future is not in the hands of the devil. He destroys. And the future is not at the mercy of a kind of a historical determinism that moves along and grinds along like a cycle and we're at the mercy of that without any purpose or meaning. Listen to me, history is in the hands of one who is shaping it into something the eye has never seen and the ear has never heard and the mind has never thought. And so John says in his epistle, it has not been manifested yet what we shall be. What he was saying by that was, you won't find it in the Bible. Jesus didn't even tell us. It's so wondrous what God is preparing for us that we wouldn't believe it if He had told us. The future's in God's hands. Or as in the words of that old hymn, this is my Father's world, and let me ne'er forget that though the wrong all seems so strong, God is the ruler yet. It seems to me that that may be the difference between facing a future with hope and expectancy and excitement and those who face the future with dread and despair and hopelessness. You see, what we, what we believe and we must continue to believe is that this future is in the hands of a God in whom we can trust and that He is shaping it like He wants it. So Sarah Teasdale put in a little journal before she became a Christian, this entry. One by one, like the last leaves on a tree, 
My faiths have fallen away. And it's a sad day when the last leaf falls. So a boy, 26 year old, years old, young man, killed himself. The newspaper told about it. He was the heir of a $20 million estate when he was 21. At the age of 26, he killed himself. Before he died, he, before he put, took his life, he made an entry in a family Bible, these words. His name, the date of his birth, and this statement. And shortly thereafter, he died of old age. What happened to him? Well, the last leaf of his faith had fallen. I want you to hear me well. You better have something this morning you can trust with regard to the future. One in whom you can place your faith. You dare not trust the arm of, of flesh. It will fail you. And I think we better be very careful. Who am I to say? But I think we better be careful as we come out of this, this war that we've been in with this euphoria that is a part of patriotism and, and, and it's a wonderful feeling and it's a wonderful thing. But folks, we better have something greater to believe in than Apache helicopters and M1, A1 tanks. They'll fail you. And a person who has this faith in a God who holds and molds the future is the person who is able to look into the future with hope and expectancy. Because that faith brings down to his life a power divine that transforms not circumstances but him. And it changed Saul, Tarsus, into a bold apostle, made Magdalene a saint, transformed the rebellious Augustine into a statesman, and made Kagawa what he calls God's greatest wager, wagerer. He said, I've waged on God my very last penny. What a gambler Jesus was. And he waged everything on the belief that God was truth and God was real. And even when he felt that darkness of God's departure from him for three hours, he still kept on believing. And beneath the cross they mocked, he trusted in God. Let him save him now if he can. So what that the political leaders rejected him and the Jewish religion, religious leaders despised him and the mark of, a, of a disgrace became the mark of the end of his ministry. Tomorrow he conquers the world, you see. So you crucify him today, tomorrow... He conquers the world. William Sloan Coffin was a Presbyterian minister at the first part of this century. And one day he was thinking about, he was talking to Justice Taft about the crumbling of the League of Nations. And he said, what do you think about the survival, the future of the League of Nations? Taft turned to him abruptly and said, you above all people ought to know that the best things in life get crucified today, but tomorrow they rise again. Jesus is the example of that. Anthony Campola tells about a famous sermon he, attend, he heard. 
he, he, he's a member of a black church in, in, in uh, Pennsylvania. And he said this black preacher got up on Easter morning and his, the title of his sermon was, It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. He said he got up there and he was just, boy, for 45 minutes, he really got worked up. He got all the people worked up. And the black preacher said, It's Friday and Jesus is hanging on a cross, bleeding and dying. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday and Mary's heart's broken and, and, and she's sobbing in tears, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday and old Pilate's strutting around like he owns the world, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday and they put his tomb, put his body in a tomb and seal it, but Sunday's coming. And for 45 minutes, that's all he did. He just got them all worked up and finally at the end, he just screamed, It's Friday! And he said in one spontaneous voice, the crowd shouted back, but Sunday's coming. You got a bad lab report? But the, but the examination is inconclusive? It's Friday. You have a rebellious child and you know what to do? It's Friday. You got bills to pay and you can't pay them? It's Friday. You've just buried the precious life of your life. It's Friday. I want you to know Sunday's coming because the future is in the hands of God. One last thought, please. The future is in your hands. Now, what he's saying to these disciples is this. Disciples is this. The gospel must be preached to every nation, he said. And he said, there are going to be times when you'll be persecuted and children will betray their own parents. What he's telling them is that, that I'm placing the future in your hands. The future rests with you. And what the future is like will be largely determined by how you make it. We're not robots, you see, that just act out what we're told to act. We're not robots. We're free moral agents created in the image of God. And if there's anything the Bible teaches, it's this, that God has entrusted to us as free moral agents the shaping of tomorrow. And that's what Paul meant when he cried, the whole world waits with eager longing, groans for the coming of the sons of God. Listen, young people, you know what Paul was saying? He's saying this world groans in its fall, waiting for somebody to come and make it better. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, a baby is God's opinion that the world should go on, but even that baby has a responsibility to this beautiful vineyard in which he's placed or in the words of Jesus, I'm placing you in the vineyard and you're to keep it until I get back. What are you doing with it? What's the future like? Well, what do you want it to be like? Well, you see, what the future is like will be term determined largely by what do you want it to be. I mean, what do you really want it to be like? The optometrist was giving Sammy his eye examination. 
And he told Sam, he said, Take, put your right hand over your right eye and read this chart. And so he put his hand up on his forehead like that. And the optometrist said, well, put your left hand over your left eye. And he put his left hand upon his forehead like this. And the doctor wasn't going to be, he wasn't going to be defeated that easy. So he got a paper sack and he put it on Sammy's head and he's going to cut out some, some flaps right over his eye. So over his eyes. So he, he raised the flap on his right eye and said, read the chart. And he thought he noticed a tear in his eye. And when he raised the left flap, he did. He, he was crying and he thought maybe he'd cut him when he was cutting the flaps. And so he said, Sammy, what are you crying about? He said, well, I kind of wanted horn rims. <laughs> Think about that a little bit. Now, I, I kind of want, I kind of want my, my home to be a Christian home, but not enough to make a commitment to that, you see. I kind of want my church to be the best church, but don't count on, not, not, not that much, you see. I kind of want some changes in my school and my local government, but don't ask me to get involved. I kind of want this world to be better but I'm not willing to pay a price to see it happen. What do you want it to be like? That has to do with desire. What do you think it will be like? That has to do with assumption. John Claypool tells about the time when he was just a boy, he came to church. He said he heard some people talking about a guy in the community, a very prominent person who had been indicted for embezzlement. And he said, the thing that impressed me was that one group was over here saying, that, that story could not be true. I know that person. I know he could never do something like that. But he said, the other group was over here saying, I knew it all along. I've been suspecting that guy was a crook all along. I've known it for, I've suspected it for a lifetime. Said John Claypool, what we arrive at as a conclusion is greatly colored by what we begin with as an assumption. Let me tell you something. If you think the world is going to get worse and worse, it probably will. For when we expect the worst in a situation, what we do is called a you know, self-fulfilling prophecy. What we do is that we, we create conditions that make that easy to happen. I don't believe this world is getting worse. I can't. For if I believe that it is, it will. That has to do with assumption. What can you see for your world? That has to do with vision. What can you see for this world, for this church, for your life, for your community. What can you see for that? Now, I was digging around this week trying to find something for the kicker. Wind this up with. And I, I read this. Did you know that an eagle, I bet you didn't know this, that an eagle has ten times as many visionary cells as the human being? You never know what you're going to learn here. Ten times as many visionary cells as a human being. That's why an eagle flying 600 feet above the earth can see a 
an object the size of a dime in grass 10 inches tall. And that's why an eagle can see a fish three inches long jump out of the water in a lake five miles away. And here's the kicker. If you're going to soar like an eagle, you're going to have to see like one. And so Michelangelo was asked, how in the world did you ever get something like David, the sculpture David, out of that stone? And Michelangelo said, there is a David in every stone just waiting to be released. There is a world where everybody loves everybody else. Where people don't beat each other up where you don't get somebody doing a number on you all the time, where people love and forgive and give. If you can see it, and if you can want it, and if you can believe it, then the future's in your hands. Let's pray. Our Father, stir us today that makes us forget about the past, it causes us to stretch every sinew and fiber of our being to make the future place where the kingdom of God is done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us begin, help us to begin in the living rooms where we live, in the office where we work, in the school where we study. For I pray in Jesus' name and I ask it for his sake.